Uh, my hope is if you're here for the first time today, that uh, the MCC is a place where you can find Jesus if you're looking for him. And if you have already met him, if you're already following him, that you'll be able to grow uh, in that in your faith. Last week, we started a series called Come Together. And we've been talking about how to put into practice the second greatest commandment. Now, when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said the second one is like it. Do you remember? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I want to be real clear about why we're talking about this. On your notes, if you haven't yet, if you'll pull your bulletin out, and on one side there's some notes at the very top. I want to make sure you took. So the things on here, the things I want to make sure you take home with you. We don't love our neighbors so that they will love or so that they will, uh, so they'll know Jesus. We love our neighbors because we know Jesus, right? We're called to love our neighbors, even if our neighbors never show any interest in Jesus, because we've made Jesus our highest priority. Listen, we don't, we don't love our neighbors uh, so they can come to know Jesus. We, we love them because we know him. Certainly Jesus has taught us that our neighbor is anyone who is in need. Uh, he tells the story after he's asked that question about the Good Samaritan. And, uh, and, but we want to make sure that we don't overlook those who live right next to us in any direction. So if you were here last week, your family received one of these, all right? It's a magnet for your refrigerator. Uh, we want you to just slap it up there. But what we want, this is your house right here in the middle. We want you to put the names of your neighbors uh, around you, okay? So I want to make sure you get those. If you, if you missed last week, if you weren't here, first of all, I want to encourage you to go to the website, check out Adam's message uh, as he started this series. But if you didn't get one of these, whether you weren't here or you just missed it last week, you didn't pick one of these up, I want to make sure that you grab one of these today. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about what I think is maybe the biggest obstacle, right, uh, that keeps us from doing this. It's kind of like an invisible fence. If you're familiar with those, you can't see it. But if you get close enough to it, man, you sure feel it. Uh, if you're wearing that collar, right, when you get to the edge of your yard, the biggest hurdle in my estimation to being a good neighbor is fear. So that's what we're going to talk about. Someone said this, it's on your notes. Fear is the prison of the heart. So it keeps you in your own yard, right? You're afraid to get to know the people around you for several different reasons. But I want to talk about fear on both sides of the fence. Your fear and maybe what your neighbor's fears are as well. Because fear can keep us from getting to know each other the way Jesus has called us to. So as we think through this this morning, here's the thought I would kind of like running in the background for you. It's on your notes as well. Ambrose Redmoon said this, Courage is not the absence of fear. Rather, it's the judgment that something else is more important. Something more important than fear that's driving us, all right? So to look at this, we're going to jump all the way into the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, you will find it helpful to open them to the book of Numbers, uh, all the way toward the very beginning of the Bible, fourth book from the front. Uh, it's page 101 if you're using the Bible that looks like this. And if you don't have a Bible, please just take the Bible that looks like this home with you. That's our gift to you. Also, you'll find it on your uh, smart devices uh, at the Bible app. I want to encourage you to check there as well. Also, uh, if you're on the Bible app, our notes for this morning are there as well. So uh, Numbers chapter 13, we're going to look at this together. Uh, the reason I want you to have your Bibles open is because we're not going to read all of the verses. I'm going to tell you part of the story. Uh, and I want you to make sure that you check to make sure I'm not lying to you. 
Okay. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders. Now, a heads up, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, or at least this part of the Old Testament, I want to make sure that you know something huge is about to happen here. When I was a student pastor, uh, I worked with the elementary kids as well, and with children's worship, which is going on at the other end of our building. And during that time like that, we taught them a song about this very story. I don't know if you know this song or not. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Do you know the rest? Ten were bad. Two were good. I had to practice all week to be able to do that. I had to, had to, so, uh, yeah. Listen, chapters 13 and 14 uh, in the book of Numbers are central to the book. Everything that happens prior to it leads right up to this event that we are about to talk about. And everything that happens after it is because of this thing that we are about to talk about. So in Numbers chapter 1, it tells us that this occurs about two years after the Israelites leave slavery in Egypt. So if you're looking for a time frame, think Moses, think Egypt. They've gotten out of that now. They're on the edge of this uh, promised land. And it has to be about harvest time, which is... Uh, late July, maybe early August, uh, for time of year, they're camped outside the land that God has promised them. See, God promised a guy named Abraham all the way at the very beginning of the Bible that he would make a great nation out of him. And he promised that his descendants would live in this land. So this promise has run hundreds of years through Abraham, through his son Isaac in his lifetime, through his son Jacob and his lifetime, through 400 years of captivity in Egypt. They kept hearing about this. The Israelites had heard this promise of that one day, one day, there's this land that we're going to get to have. I don't know if you've ever waited for something that you wanted or, or hoped for, maybe even, you know, been promised a, a car or a house, or an engagement ring. (laughs) Sorry to any guy I just tossed under the bus. Um, But give her the ring. Uh, Can you imagine being part of this group of people on this day, having gone through slavery in Egypt? Listen, they are the group. This this is the generation who's going to enter this land that has been promised to them by God. And there's just got to be this tremendous excitement in the camp. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. God said to Moses, send some men to do what? Right. They're going to explore. I want you to go in and check it out. I'm about to get it. And I want you to go look at it, which I am giving. I'm going to give this to you. I just want you to go look at what I am about to give you. That was their task. That was their task. Look at the rest of that verse, which I'm, I'm going to give this to the Israelites. God is about to hand over the deed to the land. He is about to hand over the contract on the house. The keys to the front door are in God's hand. He's about to give it to them. But before he does that, he says, I want you to check this out first. So if you have your Bibles open to Numbers 13, or if you have this on your smart device, follow along if you would. Because verse 3 says that one leader was chosen from every tribe. So there's 12 tribes, so 12 leaders would go in. And in verse 16, Moses actually sends them in to spy out the land. They got to be spies. You ever want to be a spy? Listen, when I was in sixth grade, I had a crush on a girl. Now, across the street from her house were all of these bushes. So I would ride my bike from my house over to her, over to her street, and I would travel behind the bushes and climb under this tree that was right across the street from her house. And then I would, I would wait to watch her 
play in her front yard. But she never played in her front yard. I mostly just stared at the front of her house. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go play in my front yard if some psycho kid was hiding under the tree across the street from me anyway, you know? You ever spy on people? You ever hear something going on outside and instead of just opening the door and looking out because you don't want your neighbors to think you're nosy, right? So you just kind of pull the curtains aside a little bit and you try to listen to, to what's going on. You ever do that? Can you imagine being part of something, a dangerous mission? This is way beyond any of that. This dangerous mission into foreign territory. Moses sends them in to explore the land and to bring back detailed information that would be useful in a military operation to conquer the land. And then beyond that, they were just going to move in and they were actually going to live there. So they needed to know all this. And in verses 18 to 20, if your Bibles are open, Moses tells them to find out, listen, are the people, are they weak or strong? Are there a lot of them or just a few of them? Check that out. It, look at the land. Is it good or is it bad? Are we going to be able to grow things? Is it fertile or is it not fertile? Check out the cities. Do they have walls around them? Are they fortified or not? Bring back, when you find what kind of produce is in the land, you bring back a sample of it. So they go in and they start at the south and they move their way north around the, the land. And while they're spying it out, verse 22 says that they came across three clans of people. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. Those names are not important. What's important is they're descendants of Anak. That word means long neck, and it's important to our story, so you're, so you're going to need to know that. Uh, Anak means what? Long neck, right. So they cut off a cluster of grapes because Moses told them to get some produce and some pomegranates, some figs. They put it between these poles, and they carry it out after 40 days. They return to the main camp from exploring the land. And then the rest of our text, uh, check this out, verses uh, 26 to the end of the chapter. Let's read these together. I'm sorry, I'll read them. Okay. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly. And they showed them the fruit that they had gotten in the land. And then they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And you know what? It does flow with milk and honey. Check out the fruit. But we're telling you the people who live there are powerful. Their cities have huge walls. They're very large. And we even saw the descendants of Anak, which means what? Long neck. They're tall, right? The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near this. Every ite that's ever existed lives in this land, right? And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we, should, we, should, we can do this. We should take possession of the land. We can do this. But the men who had gone in with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread this report among the Israelites, uh, a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored in, it eats people alive when they go in. The people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim. That word means giants. We saw giants there. They are descendants of who? Anak, which means what? Long neck. They're tall. They're huge. They're giants. We seemed teeny tiny in our own eyes. And they looked at us the same way. So that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept out loud. 
And this whole chapter begins with all of this hope and all this anticipation and all this eagerness. And I can't believe we're finally the generation. We're the one who's going in. We get the land. It starts with such promise. The question is what happened between verse 2 where it says, send some men to explore the land that I'm giving you. Go look at what I'm about to give you. And it ends with the whole community, right? We, we seem like grasshoppers, but it ends with the, the whole community weeping out loud. What happened between those two things? Listen, because they were afraid of the people, they did not go in. This generation of people did not get to have the land that God was trying to give to them. And so God punished them for not trusting him, for not believing him. He had them wander. Maybe you know this story. They wandered for 40 years in the desert. For 40 years, a whole generation of people, anyone over 21 years of age, they died in the desert because they made this decision not to trust God. And so they die. Their children grow up during that 40 years. They're wandering for 40 years. Generation of children grow up. Those children, now adults, come to the edge of the very same land. And this time, they trust God. And they go in and they begin to conquer the land. I give you all of that as background because the first town that they conquer is a place called Jericho. has a huge wall around it, very fortified wall. But there's this interesting conversation because 40 years later, they send two spies in to check out Jericho. And they're discovered while they're checking out the city. And so they have to hide. They end up hiding in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab says something interesting to them. She explains how years earlier, they knew the Israelites were over there. They knew they were across the river looking at the land. But what the Israelites thought was true is exactly opposite of what was actually going on. Check out what Rahab says to them. This is Rahab's talking. She said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. How long ago was that? It's 40 years ago. Four decades ago, we know what God did and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Because we know that your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Do you see what happened? The Israelites wouldn't go in because they were scared to death of the people in the land. The people of the land were behind their wall, scared to death because they knew what the Israelites were capable of because of what God had done. Listen, I share that story with you because I think it happens on both sides of the fence today. Our side of the fence, our neighbor's side of the fence. Many of us, maybe most of us have been conditioned to be afraid of our neighbors. And quite frankly, they've been conditioned and are being conditioned to be afraid of us. And someone has to break that cycle. On your notes, it says this, fear can be a speed bump. It should never be a stop sign. Let me give you three fears, I think, that we have that they maybe have as well. We probably share these in common. Here's the first one. It's the fear of not enough time. I'm a, listen, this whole thing about loving your neighbor, I just don't have time for that. I, I can't put one more thing in my... And I just want to say, that's a legitimate fear. I'm going to guess that Most of us, if not all of us here, at some point or another, 
feel a time crunch. Maybe it's sometime during the year. There's a time of year you always feel a time crunch. Maybe it's every month. Maybe it's, it may be every week. For some of us, at some point during each day, we feel our time slipping away from us. And here's the thing. Being a good neighbor does take time. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, ah, don't worry about it. It doesn't take that much time. It does take time. This may actually be the number one obstacle that keeps us from loving our neighbor the way Jesus has told us we're supposed to. And I think it's vital for us to stop and ask ourselves, do we live at a pace that allows us to be available to those that live around us, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you stop everything that you're doing right now, but what it does mean is that you look at your commitments and you reprioritize them and you make space for those things, for those folks who are living nearest to you. Look at this on your notes. It's one thing to be home. It's another thing to be present. You can apply that to your family. You can certainly apply it to your neighbors. One thing to be at home, it's a whole other thing to be present. Listen, here's the thing. God is already working in your neighborhood. He's already there. He's already doing something. Being a good neighbor simply means that you slow down, you look at where God is at work, and you join him at what he's already doing. All right, here's another fear. You ready? What if they're weirdos? You ever do that? You ever look at your neighbors, right? And what if they're weirdos? There are, there are extremes to be very certain about this. I don't know if you remember the story. I think it started in 2002 up in the suburbs of Cleveland. A man kidnapped three women, Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, and Michelle Knight. They were kidnapped and they were held prisoner for years in his house. And those, they, did, they got away, I think it was seven years ago, they, they were able to escape. But those stories get into our thinking, and I don't mean to downplay that scenario in any way, but I think we need to be careful. You ever watch your neighbors doing something and go, what the heck are they doing over there? Those guys are weirdos. Um, or, or do you ever see the way they dress? Or, or, or you look at the kind of hair they have or don't have, depending on, you know what I'm talking about? The car they drive, the number of tattoos they do or don't have, depending on whether you do or don't have tattoos, right? You ever think our neighbors do the same thing with us when they find out that, that we're Christians? I mean, I don't know about you, but there are some Christians who make me nervous. You know what I'm saying? I, I, you know, I don't tell people I'm a pastor because when I do, they start to act differently around me. When I was in Columbus, there was this gas station that it was my regular go-to. It was between where Sandy and I lived and the church where we served. And uh, every time I got gas, that's where I would get it. And one afternoon, I was walking in to pay for my gas. And the attendant behind the counter yelled, Good afternoon, Pastor Tuttle. That's how I stood. It was like, what just happened? right? Everyone's looking at me. And I, I got up to the counter. I said, why did you do that? She said, well, they were using bad language before you came in and I didn't think you wanted to hear it. And I thought, (laughs) do you ever wonder what your neighbor wonders about you? Dost thou speak King James English when thou speaketh? Right? Are you going to preach at me if I talk to you? Are you going to bring your Bible to the block party and ruin everything? You ever wonder if they wonder those kind of things? Listen, if they're not worried, you're a weirdo. And they probably are a little worried about that. But it's better than even chance. They're worried about you being judgmental. And I say that 
with some certainty because a Barna Research Group, uh, they uh, did surveys and found out that 87% of young people outside the church between the ages of 18 and 35 said the term judgmental accurately describes present day Christianity. Do you know how to change that opinion? Maybe a little overly simple. But number one, don't be, right? Don't be judgmental. Listen, on your notes it says this. All we are is beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We have no reason. We have no right. We're never called to judge those outside the church, right? That's not our task. Number two, so number one, don't be. Number two, get to know each other. Seriously, on your notes, look at this. Fear changes not only our image of others, but also what they assume they also what we assume they think about us. It changes all of that when you begin to actually get to know each other. Here's the third fear, and I think this is realistic too. What if their lives are messy? I don't know if I want I don't know if I've got time. And man, if they're messy, they could be weirdos and it could be it'll take forever if they're really messy. Listen, here's the thing. There's got to be at least some mess over there, right? I've got mess in my life, and you've got mess in your life. Of course they've got mess in their life. Jeremy Bassett is from Oklahoma, tells about his five-year-old niece, Olivia, and her best friend, Claire. They're participating in a nativity play at school, and Claire was Mary. Olivia was an angel. The night of the play, there's a little boy who was going around the dressing room and he was saying, I'm a sheep. What are you? I'm a sheep. What are you? And each child responded politely, telling him who he was. And then he got to Claire. She's struggling to get her costume on. Her mom is helping her. And this little boy says, I'm a sheep. What are you? And Claire said, I'm Mary. Well, this little five-year-old realized he'd just come face to face with the lead character. And so he kind of felt like he needed to justify his role. And with all the seriousness a five-year-old actor can come up with, he said, well, it's hard being a sheep, you know. Claire said, yeah, but it's also hard being a virgin. (laughs) And may I humbly say, she's right. It is hard to be a virgin today, isn't it? And when people around us struggle with sin, we're not called to judge them as if what they're struggling with is worse than what we're struggling with. We are all beggars. All of us. We're all beggars. Maybe that's why John felt the need to remind us at the end of the New Testament in 1 John, the command that Christ has given us is this. If you love God... You have to love other people as well. The Bible says that how I relate to other people shows how much I really love God. Man, that's huge. One of our families has heard me here at MCC has heard me talk about what we do at Trick or Treat on Halloween night in our neighborhood uh, we all get together. I live on a cul-de-sac, Sandy and I live on a cul-de-sac, and, and so we all get together for trick-or-treat, and we put all of our baskets, so when 
someone's trick-or-treating, they don't have to go beyond that house. And there's 15 to 20 buckets sitting right there on a table in front of them. And they take something from all of them. And he said, that sounds kind of cool. So we tried that in our neighborhood. They passed out invitations to about six or seven neighbors or houses closest to them, inviting them down to their driveway for trick-or-treat. And then they set up a six-foot table and with a canopy because it was kind of misting that night. And they had their candy, just, you know, what we normally hand out for, you know, th- or, uh, trick-or-treat. And th- but they also had homemade chili and hot chocolate for all the trick-or-treaters and all the parents who were coming by. And then they had some neighbors come and sit for a spell. He said, we met some that we'd only waved to in passing over the years. One elderly couple stayed and chatted a while. It was really nice. It was kind of cold that night, but it was really nice. They had way too much left over, so they encouraged their neighbors to take some of the chili home with them. He said, that it was a good time for all. But to be real, he said, one of our neighbors came over, ate some chili, Passed out his candy as we passed out ours. And then we had several families at our table. He went home and he came back with a gallon jug of moonshine to spike the hot chocolate. <laughs> he said, I almost called him a bonehead, but I remained calm and polite. And I asked him if he would take it back home and then come back after he had left it at his house. I just listen, I tell you that because it's going to be a little messy. There's some mess living next door to you, just like there's some mess in your house. But listen, that's not, it's a legitimate, it's a reality. But that fear shouldn't stop us. Look back at the top of your notes again. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Listen, the, the first step to doing what Jesus has called us to do is to uh, uh, move from stranger to acquaintance in your relationships with those nearest to you. Learning a person's first and last name is the first and easiest step that you'll be able to take to become a better neighbor because the bottom line is if you don't know their name, you don't know them. Let me say that one more time just to make sure. If you don't know their name, you don't know them. Their name is not that yappy dog in the yard back behind me. That's not their name. If you don't know their name, you don't know them. You can be an acquaintance. However, the second greatest commandment is not, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and be a great acquaintance to your neighbors. That is not what Jesus said. He said we are to love them, and that means we have to have an actual relationship with them. For those of us who wear the name of Jesus— In any neighborhood, we should be the best neighbors anyone will ever have in their life, period. No hidden agenda. No motivation other than the reality that we should love our neighbors. So your next step when it comes to your walk with Jesus in this part of your life, it might be this chart of eight that you received last week, or if you didn't get it last week, make sure you got it this week. And if you don't have it yet, please don't leave the building without this. If you would take this home and fill it out, and please don't put the house with the yappy dog. That is not, put your, find your, if you don't know who it is, listen, our staff did this a couple of weeks ago, with the exception of, I think, one person on our staff. None of us could name everyone. I couldn't name all of our neighbors, and I'm the one who gave them this. I'm in the same boat you are. It's important that we begin to learn this. Put their family's name in there and then begin praying for the homes around you. 
Pray that there would be peace in their house. Pray that you would be given the opportunity to know them better. Pray for the opportunity to show Jesus to the families around you. No preconceived notions, no other ideas. If they never come to know Jesus, listen, the whole thing is that Jesus just said, love your neighbor. And if you want to follow him, you have to do that. We have to be great neighbors. So take this chart, fill it out, begin to pray for at least one of those families, if not all of those families, right? And if you've already done that, if you were here last week and you're thinking, sweetness, I don't have to do anything. He just did, I did that last week. Here's what I want you to do. Find one of your neighbors that you don't know or don't know well. And if you don't know them, just introduce yourself to them. Maybe take them some brownies or something and introduce yourself to them. Or if you kind of know them but not much, try to get to know them a little bit better. This week, in the next seven days, make sure that you do those things. All right? And listen, if you've come today and you saw what David did in the baptistry a little bit ago, this, the, the idea of making this commitment to Jesus, this promise to God, asking him for a pure heart. Listen, if you've never made that decision, we'd love to help you with that. We are here. Our church exists to help people begin and build their relationship with Jesus. In two weeks, I'm going to be teaching a class during the 930 hour. It's called First Steps. It's mentioned on your bulletin. I'd love to have you in there with me. Listen, I'll tell you a little bit about our church. You get to ask any questions that you want to, and I'd be glad to sit and answer those for you. So I hope that uh, if, if you've never made a decision for Jesus, or if you're trying to figure out if you've just moved to the area and you're trying to figure out, is this the kind of place where I can grow in my relationship with him? I'd love to have you there. Listen, what we stand, I'm going to send you out with a prayer that we might change our world one neighborhood at a time.